Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Always good to see your faces. You never know how many of us are going to show up, what's going on in life around here. Last week was pretty exciting. We had like almost 150 people, 160 people. And I think the fun part about our church is you never know how many people are going to be here until it's about 1030. So I kind of feel like I should wait. I feel like I should wait nine more minutes. You guys don't mind waiting for me, right? And we can, let's just all wait. And then every time the door opens and someone walks through, like we applaud or something so they could realize like, how important are you? Pastor Jeff, stop the service so that we could just stop and embrace you. It's, I don't know if it's a Costa Mesa thing or a church thing. I mean, we have the aloha spirit kind of in this building. We kind of have this kind of it's all good. Uh, my, my Spanish brothers and sisters, it's total tranquilo in here, man. It's really it's nice and mellow in here, right? But I don't know. I get so fired up throughout the week, and uh, my brain starts cooking. I think I came in last night and was working on some stuff, and, you know, it's popcorn, and I'm like, you know what? This week... I'm going to bless you guys with what is on paper a short message. Now, don't clap. I know you're already excited, okay? (laughs) Last week was an entertaining message. Every week is entertaining, but the thing about it is, like, we're, we're just studying one book in the Bible, right? But it's not just any book in the Bible, and it happens to be the book about the first church, and yet it has so much movement in it. Now, I'm not a painter. I'm not someone who can tell you anything amazing or beautiful about paintings or anything like that. But I know that movement is a word that painters love to talk about. And the idea is they can look at something and they talk about all these kind of, we have a painter in her, and we we probably should call Anne up here and actually have the painter actually talk about movement. But, But in the book of Acts, if you think about what's happening in the church in the book of Acts, the fact that the church is born with this small little Jewish outburst of about 3,000 people, and that God comes down and, the, and this tongue of fire comes upon people. And then everyone starts speaking in their own dialect. And I'd imagine in a room like this, 150, 140 people, we probably have five or six different dialects that you guys can speak. Different languages, right? And, it, and if a tongue of fire came down on us and all of a sudden we could speak different languages to the point that we could actually communicate what the message was. Like the tongue of fire is very specific. It allows the individual to communicate the message Okay? It was always about salvation, and so these people wouldn't have been able to hear in their own language. So this tongue of fire comes down on people, and it was an extraordinary thing, right? And all of a sudden, the response was they started speaking Tagalog, they started speaking you know, Vietnamese, they started speaking German, they started speaking Cantonese, whatever it was, but they understood the message. They understood that Christ was calling out this community, and all of a sudden, they, they were responding, what can I do? What, what must I do to be saved? And the church was born. And yet, as you follow it, we're going to talk a little bit more about it today. Today's message is called Extraordinary Things. We're in Acts 19. I'm only going to cover the first... Hello, Jesus. Come on in. Yes, we have room for you. There's still a few seats in the front. All good? No? Nobody no one's claimed that phone? Okay. I gave mine to my wife. It happens. It's all good. But we're going to do Acts 19. We're just going to do 1 through 20. And I'm going to try to break it down in like little five-verse clumps. And hopefully it's going to be nice and creative for you. It's going to be like four little extraordinary things. Um, before I get to that, though, in light of this whole Advent, uh, I wrote some additional stuff on peace. You know, peace is an interesting thing. Peace comes from God. So when the world talks about peace on earth, the only reason that there's peace on earth is because Jesus Christ came to earth. He is peace, and the peace that comes with God is like no other. I I wrote a couple of verses and a couple of things that I think would be helpful for me to just read this morning. John 14 says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And I I don't give it to you as the world gives, so don't let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Isaiah 26 says this, You will keep in perfect peace with those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. Second Thessalonians says this, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And then finally Colossians 1 says this, For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on that cross. So one of the first things I can tell you about biblical peace is biblical peace for us means the absence of chaos, right? One of the things I'm noticing more and more about the Bora Bora, 
more and more about the world around us. As any time we look out in the world, it just feels like chaos, right? From car crashes to bike crashes to just, like, why do we even turn the news on? We know what they're going to inundate us with, and it's just, it's chaos, right? I mean, what's happening in Israel, that's chaos. I mean, everything about life is chaos, but everything about God is peace. So when I wrote this down, I was kind of interesting, the absence of chaos. Sometimes when someone hears the word absent, they think, well, it's missing something. But what it's missing is the noise, of the world, right? It's missing the noise, and what it's replaced noise with is silence. And I don't know about you, but we used to say that phrase, silence is golden, but now we hate silence. Well, let me tell you something. One of the things I really enjoy, especially at a certain place that I go to a couple of times a week, is silence. When you're in a medical room with bells and whistles and alarms going off the whole time, I'm so grateful whoever the guys who created noise counseling headphones They are worth every penny of it. Let me tell you, from flying on an airplane to anywhere you go in life where the the noise of the environment around you is caustic. And I worry about my nurses. I worry about all these people that are doing that because bing, 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 ding, 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 bing, 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 bing. And it's, you know, 12-hour shifts of this all day long, every day. And I'm like, tell me, what's it like when you go home? And the nurses all say the same thing. It never stops. Like, it's in my head. And I'm like... God, we take that for granted, right? Maybe this week would be a great encouragement for you. Prior to the message, let me just give you something about peace that I want to encourage you. Maybe this week, take some time to find it. It's beautiful. Between the beach, between the mountains, between maybe a little drive up Santa Barbara, find some time to shut it down. Shut your phones off. Shut your radio off. Go ahead and open the window and just drive the speed limit, 75 to 85 in residential, 105 to 115 on the PCH. Just drive and shut it down. Amen. Yes, and play some soft music, maybe some 70s groove. That would be awesome. And just relax and remind yourself that the peace that comes from our Father is not the same as the peace that comes from the world. And the reason why it's so beautiful is I love the little stacking between the colors of Advent and things. It's like the first domino of hope falls. When we make this profession of faith to put our hope in Jesus and the hope that what Jesus did on the cross and the forgiveness of our sins and the transmission of our sins being put on him and forgiven, the hope that we now have in Christ, it falls on the next domino. And the next domino falls is this peace that passes all understanding. So this morning as I pray, I just want to encourage you. Peace with God, peace with your neighbors, peace with your friends, peace with your marriage relationship, peace in any form in any way comes from God. And maybe this week you need to take some time to fight for the silence that God is trying to give us to speak that peace back into your marriage, back into your life, back into your faith. Go get up early, drive to Big Bear, find a nice little outlook, and sit down and have a Bible study with the Lord and just remind yourself that the peace that he will grant you in that moment is exclusively from him and for you. May the peace that passes all understanding bless you guys this week. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that Advent reminds us that this sequence of hope and peace and joy all these, all these beautiful words that we love to say, Father, it all, it all's for a reason, right? There's no reason for the season unless there's Jesus. That's why we call it Christ's Mass. Christmas is a celebration of Christ's Mass, of his birth. And so I just pray, Father, that in the busyness of buying gifts, in the busyness of driving here and there and being distracted, Father, that we would just find some time this week to be at peace to shut it all down and to hear from your spirit and that your spirit could speak to us about even like what the passage is going to talk about, these extraordinary things that you've done from extraordinary miracles to extraordinary faith to sometimes we're just extraordinarily confused about how simple you've made it. Father, may everyone that's here this morning that's both hearing in person and both listening online or even later when the message gets to go out, may they be blessed and encouraged by the peace that passes all understanding that comes exclusively from the cross and at your feet, the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name I pray, amen. Okay, so last week we talked about uh, chapter 18. We talked about the concept if God wills. And if God wills something, then that's where you want to be. Because if God wills it, then it's his responsibility to provide and lead and instruct in that. So in the same way, if you continue to kind of run up against a wall with maybe somebody or some situation where you're trying to share, you're trying to show, or you're trying to live out this godly life and it continues to be rebuffed, 
then maybe sometimes the best thing for you to do is to stand back, take a deep breath, pray, take the sandals off or your shoes off, whatever, and symbolically in your mind to say, you know what? I understand you don't want to hear. I've, I, I've, the time is very valuable to me. I'm going to see if there's someone else that may want to hear the encouragement that God has given me and hope that the Lord will continue to bless them with somebody else. But we have to stand down and trust God because that's the truth. God's will is that we're always moving, that we're always planting, and that we're always kind of pushing forward, right? We're not supposed to stop and spend our time looking back. Everything that's behind us is behind us. Yesterday is officially that. It's yesterday. And what we have is today. Today is the blessing. Right now, the next 12 hours or 18 hours of this day, that's the blessing that we have. Even tomorrow is not promised. So don't get so far ahead of yourself that you're forecasting what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Today is the blessing. How can we live in that moment? And because of that, when we get to the opportunity today to talk about some of the extraordinary things that God has done to kind of help us stay in the moment and kind of see what he's actually doing, I want to encourage you this. The reality is even starting this, that this is the third mission for Paul. He's going to be the most prolific missionary in the Bible. He's going to travel over 10,000 miles. He's going to see thousands and thousands of people. He's going to spend hours upon hours teaching the word of God. And yet in this first little encounter in the beginning of chapter 19, he's going to run into 12 more Jewish men. And he's going to try to spend about three months with them and just go over the basics of faith with them. And what he's going to find out is not only do they not understand, but they're going to continue to refuse. So he's going to follow that same pattern when it doesn't work out, is trust God and move some, move on. But if you do run into people that are extraordinarily confused, there is something you should know. Um, you're in good company. There's a lot of really confused people about God's word. And there has been from the very beginning, okay? Remember who confusement comes from, right? Let's identify. We have the three archangels. We have the three angels, Michael, right, warrior. Gabriel, messenger, and Lucifer, morning light, beautiful, but sound airwaves, right? Information. So that is his MO. One third of the angelic realm fell with, fell with him. And so one of the things you can be absolutely assured of is when confusement comes, when the airwaves and the world that we're living in now begins to send these mixed messages, it is an absolute direct response to his assault. That's what he can do. That's what he's been trained to do, and he will continue to do. So when I get a chance to discuss this with you today, I think you'll see. All this is happening in one town. This is the town of Ephesus. For those of you who have the ability to travel in life, a couple years ago I suggested places to travel. I would highly encourage you, for those of you who want to go travel somewhere and live something out, this is about the church in Ephesus. There's quite a few ruins. There's quite a few amazing places you can go. Not that I've ever been there or ever left uh, at any time to go see any of this stuff, but I watched, see the pictures on the internet and different things. I know Ephesus is an incredible place. But in the same place, it's an incredible place. It's probably one of the most important cities in the pagan antiquity. And I say pagan antiquity because in Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the known world. Okay? One of this, one of this the particular wonder is called the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis is so massive and so big that the only thing that I could tell you to do is to write some things down. The, remember, Ephesus is a big town. It has like a massive amphitheater, 20,000-person amphitheater. It has one of the largest known public libraries. They even had public toilets. They had monuments to every kind of god everywhere throughout the town. And because of that, when they built this temple for uh, Artemis, this god, they wanted to make it significant. Uh, I would say like this. It's like a Vegas... If you put Las Vegas in the middle of the desert in 10,000 B.C. and there was nothing else around, that's what Ephesus would look like. It was just like this overwhelming, incredible place that beckoned people to come and see all the things happening there. The columns itself, there was 127 of the columns on the building, 60 foot high, and it was twice as tall as the Parthenon, which is also a wonder of the world in Athens. So they did everything they could to create something symbolic in Ephesus that would draw your attention. And from this temple, it was basically debauchery that came from it. It was basically a house of ill repute. And 2,000 years ago, everyone knew what Ephesus was all about. Yet in this town of Ephesus, not only is God going to set up a church, but he's going to set up a church that's going to have influence throughout all the world. And that's why I think this message is kind of so interesting, because the idea of extraordinary things... 
Ephesus represents the extraordinary things that man was able to do. Everything that man was able to do and kind of showcase to the world, Ephesus was the place to come and see that. And yet each one of those things that God countered with, okay, you have the biggest amphitheater, you have the biggest library, you have the biggest this, I'm going to show you something else in God's word that's going to kind of speak to that. So I don't know, this is kind of who our God is. He always meets people where they are. This is the fabulous, intriguing component about faith, is that God meets people where, where they are. And starting in this opening passage, let's start with extraordinarily confused. Verses 19, 1 through 5, and I'm reading from NIV. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, and he arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So then Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, and that is Jesus. Upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And now, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes down. They spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men. Okay, so Paul meets these guys in Ephesus. These are the guys that are, he's going to spend some time with them, and he's going to begin to teach them about something, and he's going to start off by saying, who have you been baptized in the name of? Who is your person that you're following? What do you associate your faith with? And their claim to him is John the Baptist. Now, that's a little bit shocking to him in the, in the scope of who he's been talking about and how he's been sharing, but when they ask them, what do you know of Jesus, their response is nothing. Uh, this made me write down a little bit note. How many people today in the world have, are followers of speakers or followers of pastors who claim to be a representative of Jesus and yet somehow get themselves involved with kind of the leadership or the ownership of these people that are following? Right? So, so, so easy for us to kind of forget who we are. Like for me, one of the things I want to make sure for me as a pastor is I always want to deflect any kind of uh, attaboy or, you know, you got it going on or praise God for you. It's like, I am not. I can tell you 100%. Ask my family. I cannot walk on water. I cannot heal people. There's a lot of things that I wish that I can do. And one of the things I want to make absolutely clear is anything that's good about me is only because of God. And in one of these situations here, like even for John, I don't imagine that John the Baptist wanted people following him. I mean, if you know who John was, he was considered to be pretty wild. Um, we don't have any really bearded wild men wearing loincloth and honey and locust in their beards that I could refer to, but I mean, this is who John was, okay? I'm imagine a big burly dude, giant beard, full of honey and debris, not really necessarily looking for the spotlight, right? The, what's coming out of John is powerful, right? The word of God sometimes comes out of someone and it's powerful and it draws us to that individual. But I want to encourage you, don't let it draw you to that individual and then circumvent who the individual is speaking on behalf, right? The power and everything that John had was relative to the Messiah. And John actually calls himself the herald, right? A herald is someone who stands in front of something and says, you know, this is what's happening, come here. He's heralding the one who's coming. And yet somehow he's ended up having followers. You remember Jesus had the same problem when he shows up to be baptized. There was followers of John who then went and started to follow Jesus, but at the time were following him. And it's a problem because he has to correct this. This is going to take time. This is going to take energy because they're extraordinarily confused. And as believers, it's easy for us to fall into kind of confusement. Sometimes somebody will say one thing or well, you'll hear one thing and you, and you kind of believe something. Rather than going to that individual and saying, hey, there's a component about our faith I don't understand, we kind of hear something and we think something and believe something. And I can think of a couple of different things in truth, like just talking to you guys last week about tithing or baptism, or even communion, right? There's things about faith that we get confused about because we just haven't had the truth given to us. And when Paul's trying to do is, he's going to extraordinary, what do you counsel? You're going to counter extraordinary confusement with extraordinary teaching. He's going to get really black and white. He's going to get really simple. He's going to get really 90 degrees, and he's going to do it for a long time. Remember the first time he was in Ephesus, they asked him to stay, and he told them, no, I'm not ready. This is the third time he's coming back to us. This time he's going to stay for three years. And I don't know about you, but a commitment to me is, you know, a six-month commitment to someone. If I've counseled with someone for six months, 
That's a pretty good commitment. But Paul's going to make this long-term commitment to the body of Christ to do extraordinary teaching. And he's going to teach them about everything and anything. Because think about it. I mentioned it in the beginning. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls on people and they speak tongues. And then they says, be baptized. Let me go over some of the ways starting in chapter 2. The first one was repent and be baptized. Starting in Acts chapter 2. Okay, 3,000 people fall. Then by chapter 8... They have to lay hands upon them, and then the Spirit moves, and then part of that thing is they have to believe and be baptized. Little word changes and nuance changes and all these little changes, because Acts is a transitional book, okay? Acts is the book of the beginning of the church moving on this timeline through different people. It's starting exclusively with the Jew, and so there's movement in kind of how God wants to bring them in and kind of move. And as that movement goes from a Jew to maybe halfway through to verse 10, now there's this mention of a proselyte. Now, a proselyte is a Gentile who wants to follow the Jewish ways. And if a proselyte wants to come to faith, they need only believe. Acts 10, they need only believe and not be baptized. So there's baptism, not baptism, save, repentance, all these different little nuances. So that by chapter 15, when he finally says, okay... This is actually all you need. From this point on, the Gentiles are now in. We're kind of done with this period of going Jews only. Grace is what saves us. You are saved by grace, grace alone, okay? There's nothing you can do for it. In other words, don't think of baptism as being something you do for it. You can't do anything for it. You need, need only grace. So this is why by the time we're in chapter 19, and he's like, oh my gosh, here we are again with more confused people about other components. I think this is why he writes 14 of the 27 New Testament books. As he moves through the book of Acts, Paul, with all these different understandings as the Lord reveals things, by the time he then writes the letters to the Ephesians or to the Galatians, his doctrinal views are much more established, and he can actually write some stuff to the church that helps. So for those of you who are theologians, may I just encourage you, the book of Acts is transitional. It's kind of following the birth of the church from different people groups. But if you want to follow a little bit easier theology, probably Galatians and Ephesians would be better for us to follow because it's extraordinary, right? It was extraordinarily confused people in the beginning, and so it required that Paul meet with extraordinary teaching. The teaching moved as the Spirit of God moved. As the Spirit of God revealed, sometimes the Spirit came down, and that was an actual movement, and it moved. Then there was other times that the Spirit was in Paul, and Paul's going to pray and lay hands on, and now the Spirit's going to be passed. So all these little nuances of how it works were all how Paul was doing it. But the end result was the extraordinary teaching had to happen. So let's read on the next passage and find out what he's going to do to do some extraordinary teaching and how he's going to do this. So starting in verse 8, Paul then entered the synagogue. He spoke boldly for three months. He argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. And some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe. And he publicly maligned and they publicly maligned the ways. They talked poorly about the way. The way was the name of the early church. So Paul left them. He took those 12 disciples who was trying to teach and mentor and disciple. He had discussions daily with them in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And talk quite a bit about that in a second here. And this goes on now for two years. Two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Now that, in and of itself, is absolute extraordinary. Okay? It's estimated 2 million people were available at the time. So in two years, he's going to be able to communicate, starting with 12 people on this kind of little daily uh, talk over at the Hall of Tyrannus about who God is. But one of the things I want to explain to you, the Hall of Tyrannus, first of all, so they had these halls, these magnificent halls where people could gather and speak. Uh, like the Spanish culture today that maybe uh, between 11 and 1 o'clock is considered the hour where there's no work and they shut down. In Ephesus, they had a similar kind of uh, situation. Between the hours of 11 and 3, everything shut down. It allowed the people to rest and prepare for parties and other whatever things they were going on. So this particular hall was not being used. Good rental rates, by the way. Paul had good rates on that. So Paul goes in there and says, hey, look, no one's using this. He's a tent maker, right? He is a tent maker who's building tents all day long, every day, so that people don't have to pay him so that he can preach the word of God. But he realizes now there's this gap. There's this little opportunity to utilize something. The synagogues aren't working. He'd been going to the synagogues the whole time. It's not working. So he's just going to rent a hall, and he's going to start sharing with them. But let me make something perfectly clear to you. For the two years that he shared with them, he does not have a Bible to share with them. Right? There's no Bible at this time. 2,000 years ago, there is no Bible. 
There's some Old Testament scrolls for sure, right? But what would he be able to share Monday through Saturday, 11 to 4, four hours every day for two years? Think about this. I read an article on this whole Hall of Tyrannus, and one guy, one of the commentaries said, this is like one of the single greatest things that the church has lost contact with, is that two, two million people end up hearing over two years what he actually did. But in order for him to do that, what he actually, he probably had to spend a lot of time just giving testimonies and sharing actual faith stories of what God was actually doing. Because the Old Testament scrolls that they had would have been pretty limited, right? They would have had very limited access. They had a library in town, so whatever they did have access to, they would utilize that, but it had to be somewhat limited. But yet, in this time of sharing with the people and kind of giving them the basics, once again, extraordinary teaching, over two years of doing it, it says all of these people come to hear. Okay? And what do they do from this? They, they become extremely dedicated. They're going out and telling their other friends. They're seeing Paul work all day long and then come in here and spend this time with them. And he's teaching them and he's answering questions and he's doing this all without having a Bible. Now, this is a good little sub point. For those of you like, today the Bible has been made available so proficiently, I mean, on your phone and so many other things. When you talk about what you're going to actually share with someone, before you get to sharing all of the Bible with someone, make sure you start with your testimony. What this reminds me is the power of your testimony. Now, something we used to do in new believers class, which unfortunately we don't have one here, but maybe one day we will bless to have a new believers class here, is the first thing I would always ask everybody in a new believers class, what would happen if the opportunity came for someone to say, you know what, I noticed, John, you don't drink or smoke or cuss like everyone else around me does, so what is it about you that makes you different? What, when that opportunity in life comes for someone to recognize you and give you that nod, and they turn the spotlight on and they say, you know what, Roger, you're a good guy, but why are you a good guy? What is it that makes you and Kathy different than all the other people that we deal with? In that moment that the spotlight turns and comes on you, is, is quoting scripture going to be super advantageous? I mean, it would be if, the, if, the con- if it was all a congregation. Maybe 75% of the congregation would understand a scripture. But in that moment when God turns that spotlight on you, this is what Paul said. To the, he, he basically wanted them to understand, what is your testimony? You talk about something that's irrefutable. Tell them what God did to you. Tell them what God did in your life. The miracle, because the next thing coming up is extraordinary miracles. The extraordinary miracle is that every salvation is a miracle. And your testimony then becomes extraordinary because it's irrefutable. They cannot refute it. You can't say, well, I've been going to church and going to church and going to church and I got saved and I made this decision and I was 14 and from that point on I just stopped doing different things and I wanted to be a pastor. Whatever it is, however you commute your, that, 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 that salvation story, it's irrefutable. And it makes other people go, oh, I can relate to that. Right? Like not everybody relates to everyone's salvation story. Some are pretty extreme and like movie-like, right? And some people are like, well, because mine's not movie-like, mine's not very good. No, not true. There's not a good one and a bad one. There's just our testimonies. And Paul, I'm sure, is spending this time teaching them and educating them because the extraordinary miracle of your salvation is so crucial. I remember leading a young man to the Lord when I first came into ministry in 2007. My son was a really good uh, recruiter of kids, and he invited some kids from the baseball team to come to youth group. And this young man came to a youth group, and he came from a very dysfunctional family. His dad was not really home. He was heavily involved in pornography. He had his mom read tea leaves. And so the whole family dynamic was pretty much off. And as he walked into the youth group, we designed our youth group back in the days to be like church. And so we had greeters, like kid greeters. And we had like a food ministry. And so any of the students that came early, we fed them a lot of food. They ate a lot of food. And, and we greeted them because we just wanted our youth group to be like church so kids could go to youth group and then one day go to church and not have to make this impossible transition. And as he walked in and was greeted and all these different things, everything in his head was going, what's going on? He was so confused because he didn't have community like that in his own household. He didn't have people who were feeding him and telling him, hey, glad you're here in his own household. And as the service went on, I remember he had this kind of cat in the headlight like this thing the whole mess like he understood nothing of what i said that first night you could nothing but at the end of it when i said you know hey there's an opportunity for you to be saved here all you have to do is say this prayer he waited till everyone leave and then he asked me to the library and we sat down alone he says i don't know what salvation means i don't know what any of the words you said but i just i need to do that like what does it mean to do that and so i remember praying with him 
And as soon as we were done praying, he looked at me and he said, what happened? And I said, what do you mean what happened? He goes, something happened. And I said, nothing. I said, well, something happened spiritually, but I don't know. What do you mean? Something? He was like, I, I feel something happened. And I was like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Calm down. Just starting tomorrow, read your Bible. I gave him a Bible. Read your Bible. Start in the book of John. By the way, great book for everyone to start with, a new believer, the book of John. It's the most proficient account of Jesus' life. It's a great place. Just read five verses a day. And then pray is not like a special community. Just talk about, Lord, thank you for these verses. Help me to understand them in my life. Just start making it simple. I was going to have to mentor him. And over the next few weeks, over the next few years of mentoring this young man and watching him try to walk away from years and years of pornography and walk, watching him walk away from his mom's tea leaf reading and from his little brother seeing all these changes in his life. He, he, he brought him to church, and then his brother gets saved, and then his mom gets saved. And the whole community around him from one miracle saving starts to spread out into this whole thing. It was 10 years later when I realized this kid had turned a job at Costco into a career. He's now married. He has two kids. He does ministry full-time. He's a fabulous, just a amazing. But it all started with an extraordinarily confused person who needed extraordinary teaching. And you know what the extraordinary teaching was? Start with a prayer and get simple. Just ask Jesus in your life. You need a Savior, and he can forgive you, and he can give you strength to say no to these things that have been tormenting you all your lives. And the extraordinary miracle of that young man's life became this extraordinary thing that he could then teach to so many people. To not have a Bible, to not have all these other resources, sometimes we make this kind of excuse, like, I need all these other things to do that. That's not what you need. What you need is what you have. And your testimony is a great starting place. So if you have been struggling with your evangelism, if you have been struggling inviting people to church or sharing your faith, may I please remind you, it all starts with your testimony. Make sure you know your testimony and you're able to share it. So let's keep reading now because these extreme miracles are going to be TV-like. And uh, maybe you can relate to some of that today. So starting in verse 11. So God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that were touched by him then taken to the sick the illness of that individual was cured and evil spirits left them now just in and of itself that to me could be a message extraordinary miracles but i want to give you kind of some explaining miracles in the bible same word uh, dudamas is power okay but the idea of extraordinary miracles was interesting the greek word there has the idea of an accurate power use an accurate power use and i think that's kind of cool because what god is trying to do is meet these people from ephesus who are used to extraordinary things extraordinary works of their own hands and now he's showing them the counter the extraordinary work of god's hands and saying hey look this guy's a tent maker so you're building tents there's all kinds of cloth and pieces that are left over as you're building a tent you grab one, somebody grabs one of those cloths and believes that something about it is special, and they take it, and they put that cloth on someone, and they say, in the name of Jesus, and it's just a cloth that Paul is touching, yet that person is healed. God is doing extraordinary things so that the Jew can believe. Now, it talks a lot in the Bible about why the miracles are kind of so specific, and it talks specifically about how hardened the Jew's heart was that he needed a miracle to believe, and yet he still struggles with belief. But I want to encourage you that if somebody actually had that power today, because I know there's a lot of TV shows, there's actually pastors on TV that say, you know, send me a hundred bucks and I'll pray over a handkerchief and, you know, you can do crazy things with it. If someone really has this power today, okay, on behalf of the faith that we believe in and the God that we all call our Lord and Savior, can you just go to Chalk Hospital today? Please? Can you just start at the first floor? No cameras necessary, no internet followers following you or nothing. But can you just start at the first floor at that one child that has been completely traumatized in life by whatever disease that has put them in chalk? I don't know if you've had the privilege of going in chalk, but it's kind of an incredible place where they minister to young people that all have all these ailments. And a lot of times they try to assist financially with these families, or whatever, because it's just overwhelming. But could you just start healing from room one, one, first floor, and just finish the whole building by the end of the day? Because why do, we, why do we want to monetize something from God? Why would someone be willing to profit or to show themselves somehow more or less than you because of something God has gifted us? Right? 
If God has really left this power still available, then that's what should be done with it. But for some reason at this time, this is a power that God has actually given. That is extraordinary. And all of a sudden, people are seeing things and seeing what's happening with these little cloths. And sure enough, the world sees what God's doing in the church. And somebody thinks, hey, we could use that. We could use that. Maybe there's something that we could do with this Jesus' name or whatever. Remember, Ephesus is a town filled with gods, filled with statues, filled with everything occult and magical based. We're going to find out not only is it filled with it, but when God does move in the town, the sheer volume, the money that's brought in and resources of the occult that's brought in and turned in and people walk away from is in the millions of dollars, millions of dollars back then. Because that's what they were known for. So I'm sure there's possessed and uh, oppressed people anywhere and everywhere around. And now all of a sudden this idea of being, having a power to do extraordinary miracles, it looks attractive to people. But I want you to realize that this is not the first use of extraordinary miracles God has used. Do you remember back in the desert when God made food? He called it manna. And he made it for them every single day and kept a million people alive. On manna? Is our God used to doing extraordinary miracles? Yeah. What about Elijah's never-ending flour and oil? Pretty cool for those of you who cook, right? You go to the cabinet and you got a little bit of oil and you got a little bit of flour. You make your burrito, your falafel, or whatever, pita, whatever it is. You put your elements back. You serve your people. You wake up in the morning and you go and get that. And the same amount of oil and the same amount of flour. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? Because this is who our God is, and this is what our God has been doing. And he was willing to do it for people to let him know, I got it. What about Balaam's donkey? Mm. You mean the animal kingdom can speak? Hey, if you don't think the animal kingdom can speak, you just haven't watched any nature shows lately. You watch a nature show lately in between elephants, whales, dolphins. My mind is blown when I think about what God has actually shown us that's actually available for us to see. And not only the levels of communication, but cooperation between the animal kingdoms. Elephants, it said, know when their elephants die and where they die. And as they migrate every year, will go off the path. And the bones of those elephants that have died remain there. And they will take the entire herd through those areas. And they will reach out with their trunk and touch sometimes those bones of those past ones. And then return back to the path. He built the animal kingdom, right? It's weird to us, but it's like he built it. And who named it? We did. Like our forefathers named them. Extraordinary things is what our, our father does. How about Israel when they got snake bitten in the desert? That was fun, right? Snake bitten, that doesn't sound fun at all. But you know what they had to do when they got snake bitten? There was this big serpent on a pole, this copper pole. It was a big serpent wrapped on the pole. And if they came and they looked at the serpent, instantly healed. Wild, huh? Well, serpents, I mean, when did the Lord decide to use serpents for good? I don't know, but any of you ever seen the AMA medical symbol for doctors today? A serpent on a pole? Shocking. They don't even know what they don't know. They don't even know how it even got there. Healing from the Old Testament. Extraordinary. I wrote so many of these down, I'm not going to do them all, but the woman with blood issues. 12 years you have a, a, an issue, okay? For any of you who have labored with something continuously in your life, a year is a long time to labor with something, right? Amen? But 12 years, you're, you're just throwing the talent at that point. You're like, this is never going to go away. But somehow she hears. She hears of this miraculous Jewish maker, this, uh, this carpenter who comes through town, and the Shekinah that follows him and his posse, that if you could just get out into the, the Shekinah falling back down, it might be able, And she thinks, well, what happens if I could touch him? Well, forget touching. Whatever, I could just touch his robe, like the fringe. Like, you know, when you see a prayer cloth, if you ever see a prayer cloth, it's called a talid. At the end of the prayer cloth, there's little tassels, those little tassels coming off. That's what literally this miracle implies. She reached out and touched the tassel as he's passing by in a crowd of people. Doop, stop, entire parade. Jesus, what's going on? Something has left my body. What? What? What kind of thing? No, miraculous healing power. And he turns and finds says, woman, your faith has made you whole. See, I don't think that was just a blood issue anymore. I think that was salvation. 
right? The whole point of the miracle is for you to recognize who he is and what that represents. And the whole point of this whole thing was is, okay, we can monetize this. We can do something with this. Let's use this for our good. I mean, this sounds exciting, right? Uh, it's uh, potentially lethal, and we're going to find out here in a matter of minutes that uh, trying to use the Lord's name for your benefit could be extremely lethal, especially when he exposes you for what you are. The idea is pretty simple here. Extreme, extreme spiritual warfare is always going to be countered by some kind of diversion. And now in this situation, there's Jewish exorcists. They're kind of like priests, but their specialty is removing all these oppressed people's demons and occult things that they have. And they're called the sons of Sceva. And we're going to read here now what happens is they see an opportunity to jump on the bandwagon of how we can heal and do some miraculous things. So let's read these verses 13 through 16. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried then to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. And then one day, an evil spirit answered them. Uh-oh. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped upon them, overpowered them all, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's pretty extreme, Right? I don't know if any of you have ever had to deal with oppression. If you have, then you know that this section, it sounds, to me when I read this, this is funny, okay? You, you think you're going to fool God? You think you're going to fool a demon? The demons have spoken before, right? We have accounts in the Bible where demons have spoken before. You remember Legion? Legion, which he identified himself as Legion, meaning many he identified himself in a conversation with Jesus and said, what do we have to do with me? It's not my time, knowing exactly who he was. Then the Lord sends legion out to a herd of pigs that are nearby. 2,000 pigs then become filled with the spirit inside this man. Remember, legion was the man sitting in the tombs, cutting himself all day with the chains and doing all these acts of strength, and people were all traumatized by him. The demons then leave this man's body. All the pigs then run off an end of a cliff like down near the lake, and they all drown themselves. The result of that drowning then puts a couple of Jewish pig farmers very, very unhappy. People, part, the people's animals have been killed, puts them at odds with the Lord. Then Legion, the person who's now been healed, he wants to go with the Lord as they get ready to leave, and he says, no, go tell everybody about what has been done for you. Beautiful part of that story is when the Lord returns. Legion has led thousands of people with just this testimony to the Lord, right? Demons know, and they know what you don't know about who's talking. So if you are in that opportunity of a lifetime and you have to uh, um, confront something, I just want to encourage you, please don't uh, uh, do it by yourself. Make sure you're with some other people. This is a great time to get elders or other people that you're, and just realize something that a uh, Standing in front of someone who's in an oppressed situation and then claiming on behalf of somebody else is not where you ever want to be. The, the sole authority is when you're saying to something, come out, is saying, the greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. We cannot, remember, I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, we cannot be oppressed. We can be, we can be, we cannot be, have a demon inside of us. We can have a demon who's trying to hold us back, Okay. But Jesus, if he's in you, if the Spirit of God is in you, no, nothing can come into that. But for an individual that's under oppression, if that individual is then freed of that oppression, you have to remind yourself, if they don't make a profession of faith, if they don't invite the Spirit of God in, the Bible then says that single spirit that was called out to leave waits and returns sevenfold. Okay? This is not an area of your life to be experimental with or work to, to try because in the, in the point that the demon then recognizes you, I don't know you, and you're about to find out who I am, he then leaps from the body that he's in and lays a whooping, I mean a full whooping on seven guys and leaves them naked, bleeding, and running into the streets. Now, what kind of testimony did God allow a demonic person to have for the kingdom of God in that situation? See, Romans 8 says God can use all things for his glory. So even someone who has been, now I'm, 
just for the record, even in this town, I've dealt with oppression in the last six months of being in ministry here at the church. It's still happening every day. Matter of fact, as I ride with the police department on the regular, I would probably say a very high percentage of the people in our town that are walking the streets because of their own volition choose to be on the streets are doing so because they're not of sound mind. You can use your own discretion to explain that, but they're not of sound mind. You're not able to look at someone and say, hey, can I get you help? Do you need some clothes? There's no ability to communicate in any way that makes any sense to us because their mind is not sound. They simply scream out. They blurt out things. They see things. They're constantly telling you, watch out, look out. Here, watch out, someone's coming. And it's just, it's, it's the battle to control their own things, okay? To be in this situation to combat extreme, you need that, once again, that extreme teaching. The extreme teaching is simply this. Jewish exorcists have no power. The tarot card reader at the end of our street, it doesn't surprise me she's going out of business. She has no power. He has no power. They have no authority. There is only one name and one authority that can cast out an evil spirit. Okay? If you don't know, don't mess with it. If you do, trust that God is greater than that person. Because extraordinary miracles, once again, get to showcase who God is. The whole point is, when you're, when you're dealing with someone who's extreme, when you're dealing with someone who has this kind of extreme kind of situation, then you need something extreme to counter with it. And God counters with it by saying, okay, you're, you're putting your hope and faith in the demonic realm. Let me give you the spiritual realm and show you what it can do to that demonic realm. It can cast it out. So let's keep moving through this passage and finish it up here. And what is the result of extreme confusion? extreme teaching it counters it it brings it back into justification people begin to understand in their understanding they begin to see things they begin to hear from god and the results of that is god has this opportunity to do extreme miracles <coughs> and now we're going to finish with this final extreme thing verse 17 through 20 when this became known to the jews and greeks living in ephesus they were all seized with fear and the name of the lord jesus was held high in honor and many of those who believed now came openly and confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So even though Ephesus was known as being a place where great spiritual oppression was happening, now all of a sudden there's a new movement happening. And all this sorcery and all this evil and everything that has kind of been overwhelming people, it's slowly losing momentum to a new tide that's coming through. And this new tide that's coming through is providing a clarity for people to realize what they've been doing and in whom they've placed their hope and their trust and their power and their authority of life in. And they're seeing it as being evil and they're calling themselves out. And they're bringing these scrolls, they're bringing these books, they're bringing all the stuff that's of great value to them, and they're bringing it to Paul, and Paul is burning it. By the way, I've also had uh, stuff brought to the church uh, from someone that was involved in something, and they said that none of their friends could help them, and would I help them with it? I thought, how bad could this be? It's simply a box with sorcery books and some coins and some other things or whatever. I tried to take that to the beach and burn it over a period of two months, like five different times. Every single time I put it in my car, every single time I tried to go do it, every single time I would get down there, something would happen. The wind was blowing, the things would happen. And I finally got down to the beach one day, and there was a ton of people down there, and I set it all up in this one box, and I didn't have lighter fluid. I should have brought some other, I should have contacted some people who are better pyrotechnics than me. I just had like one little lighter and I just said, Lord, I know this stuff is not of you and I know it's been oppressive to this person and I really need to get rid of this, but I can't throw it in the dumpster. I can't put it somewhere else. In my mind, it will find its way back to someone, please. And I lit just like the little cardboard box that it was in and it just went up and it went up in like such a way that was just like, you know, I like bonfires at that point. I was like a small boy pyro and it was just like, yes. And it just started going up, and I was like, Long Beach, and I was literally like dancing around like a small, like jovial thing. I'm like, yes, get rid of this stuff. 
But I mean, I couldn't believe that it was burning like that. And I couldn't believe, and my thought was, it's just, it's me and it's evil versus good right here on the beach right now. And I, and I wanted to wait until all of it was burned up. And so that's what I did. I waited. But I mean, it's weird to think that something can have such power. But you know what else has such power? Is God's word. God's word has the same power. Matter of fact, the word of God says this, that that book that you're holding is living and breathing and able to cut marrow Marrow's inside of your bone, right? Think about how powerful and sharp that is. Any two-edged sword that the world could create is nothing compared to the living, breathing word of God. And because of that, this extreme oppression has put these people in a position to where now all of a sudden they're being freed. And now they're openly coming of their own volition to give up their goods. And what is the result of that? A drachma. Any of you have used a drachma lately in your... No? Got a, got a drachma. Okay, I wrote, I wrote this down. I thought this was good. So the amount of a drachma is simply this. A drachma was 2,000 years ago the equivalent to one day's wage, 12 to 14 hours worth of work. So this equals 100 years worth of daily wages or at a current fair market value of $4 million. They brought some stuff. It was piled high. Right? I don't know if any of you were around for the old book burning days, or I mean, my church used to, when I was a kid, we'd burn albums and all kinds of stuff. Oh, still spin the Led Zeppelin album backwards, you know, and burn the albums and do all this stuff. It's like, that's not new. This has been going on from the very beginning. People have had things in their life that have been oppressing them, and this is something that they wanted to do to have that outward expression of how to remove something. They brought it to the church, they brought it to their leaders, and they simply said, whatever you have to do to get rid of it, regardless of the cost. Church, by the end of this book, I'm not doing the rest of the chapter for you today, but if you're doing it in small groups, it's going to affect the whole town. The whole town. Matter of fact, there's guys in the town who are silversmiths, and their job was to fast, you know, fashion uh, idols. And they're going to start losing their business because the idol business is going to start to slow down and dwindle to the point that no one's interested in having it because the word of God is going through and it's effectively causing this incredible change. So we've had extraordinarily confused, countered by extraordinary teaching. We've had this extraordinary miracles, which now does what? Extraordinary miracles produces extraordinary faith. Like when you've seen God do something in your life, I don't know, have you seen God do something in your life? Have you seen something extraordinary? Did you forget about it? Is God's onus to you to have to continually do extraordinary things for you to believe? Or has God quantifiably done something extraordinary in your life that you forgot about that maybe on this quiet time that I asked you to consider this week, do you need just to rethink about something that God has done in your life extraordinary? Because if not, fall all the way back to your salvation. Fall all the way back to the day that the Lord actually tapped on your door and you figured out that, hey, he's standing at the door knocking, but he's not in, right? If we hear... Jesus, I'm here. And we're like, Jesus, guys, is here. Jesus is on the outside of the building. Not till we open the door and Jesus comes in, is Jesus here, right? Jesus is there until we open the door. But in that moment that you were able to open the door, do you realize what an act of God, what an act of miracle that is? That the Spirit of God would let you realize this. That is, the, that is God. That is the answer to the reason for the season. That is Jesus. Let him in. Like, people... That is the only unforgivable sin, right? Think about the unforgivable sin manifesting in the form of something physical. That is Jesus. That is salvation. And he's standing at the door and he's knocking and asking me to spend eternity with him. And my spirit says either, yes, I'm going to let him in and I need him to be my Lord and Savior, or the same spirit of God that's telling me that I now refute and I tell no. And in that, I just committed the single unforgivable sin that will place me in front of the bema seat of God one day and hold me accountable for the entirety of my life. Where in the same moment, if I allow that spirit of God to speak and I open that door, I now have the advocacy of Jesus Christ for the rest of my life so that when that bema seat does come for me, Romans 8 will then intercede. And what does Romans 8 remind us? There is no condemnation for those in Christ. That is encouraging and extraordinary information. One final thought, extraordinary faith. Extraordinary faith happened in the beginning, like I said, it came down from heaven, extraordinary. And then all of a sudden it was prayed over and it was extraordinary. 
Every time it moves, every time it changed, it was extraordinary. But the, resu the result of it is still the same. Whether it was 2,000 years ago, or two days ago, or two weeks ago, or two years ago, the day that Jesus Christ came into your life, you became, according to Scripture, a new creation in Christ. And your old life and the things that you used to do, even though it's going to continue to fight with you and continue to struggle with you and continue to battle with you, your old life no longer has authority over your life. And you have the ability. Some people, I was talking with an uh, individual this week about um, AA and how grateful they were for the word higher power because they had grown up their whole life trying to fight off alcoholism without any help. And for the first time in their life, they didn't know the name of God. They didn't know the name of Jesus. But just having that ability to say higher power gave them the realization that there was something in life that was even stronger than the pull of alcoholism in their life. I'm so grateful that people come to the Lord one day and realize that when we know his name, the name above all names, and have the ability to invoke that name, that every kind of sin and every kind of barrier and every kind of chain that has us held captive can fall in the name of Jesus. One final thing, and I'm done. Yes, I'm done. Turning my light off. I want you to realize something. Christmas season is extraordinary. People are going to be willing to talk to you about things that they will not talk about throughout the year. If Easter and Christmas provide the church anything, they provide two opportunities a year to talk about church and faith and God and come into church and faith and God without making people angry. Because relative to the season, it's kind of expected. For those of you who kind of loathe the whole idea of family gatherings and someone having to pray, rethink your whole philosophy about all that stuff. Your prayer over a Christmas meal, your prayer over Thanksgiving may be the only prayer an individual hears all year long. What are you really saying? And why are you saying that? Because you're afraid? Because the Bible says if you're afraid of anything, Proverbs 1.7 encourages you, be afraid of the Lord. Because man can't do anything to your soul, but the Lord controls your soul, right? Any other kind of fear is unwarranted. Be confident in this, that if God asked you, back to last week's message, if God's asked you to do it, and it's God's will that you do it, and someone does go around the thing and say, hey, Romy, can you pray for the meal? And it gets to you. Take a deep breath. Go to that calm place I'm asking you to go to this week. Take a deep breath and say, yes, I would, I would love to pray. And then talk to God like you're talking to him. Please don't pray like you're at church, right? Once again, something that's been stolen from us, Pray without ceasing. Well, I don't pray. Uh, Lord, God Almighty, you know, we, all the TV shows make fun of it, and the one guy in the TV shows, he starts singing a song. and like, God doesn't want us to, it's not weird. He's not looking for anything weird. He's looking for communication. Prayer is just open communication between you and the Lord. So in that moment at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever the prayers, you just tell him, hey, thanks for all these people in the room. These are the people that I love. These are the people that matter to me. This is a day that's really a blessing to me. May the food taste delicious. Thank you for the hands that prepared this food. Thank you for the finances that financially prepared this food. And may everything that happens in this house today be a blessing to you because we know all good things flow from you. Just, just talk to him. Just talk to him about what you're thinking and let people hear that because you don't know the ministry you're about to have to someone. And that might be the salvation key to release someone to extraordinary miracle, which is, like I said, salvation for me. So as I get ready to pray, I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and I'm going to ask you to just make a consideration. This Christmas season, I guarantee you the opportunity is coming. If it hasn't come yet, it will come. But your friends and your family are going to be willing to hear stuff. They're going to be willing to come to church. Maybe they just come over for an event. Maybe you just do something small and special with them. But don't let the opportunity to do something miraculous be impeded because you have to do extra dishes for two days. We just had everyone over for Thanksgiving, and that was a lot. Going to Costco the day before Thanksgiving is a lot, you know? And my $400 Costco bill for three people became like $800 for like nine people. But, you know, the blessing is, is that we could do that, right? We had our house remodeled so we could actually put a table with 12 people in there. And my mom and dad were frustrated because, you know, the kids and babies and noise and all that stuff. It's like, but... I was joyous about that because you know what the babies mean? That our family's alive and God is blessing. And the next generation of Lees and other family members are growing up. It's like, be, be cautious about what frustrates you. you know, doing the dishes or taking the trash out. 
take the trash out with an attitude of gratitude. Lord, thank you for this incredible amount that we had all this stuff. So much turkey, so much bread, so much butter, so much. Uh, thank you for all this stuff. Thank you for the people that will come and collect this trash that I don't have to do it like in the days of yore, dig a hole in my backyard and burn it, right? Just change your attitude about everything. Keep it simple. Keep it small. Those are, that's an extraordinary act too, church. And if the world really needs anything from us right now, what it needs is extraordinary simplicity. Stop with the complexity. We're never going to outdo. This church will never laser light show another church's worship. We're never going to have the same moving crowd and smoke. and We're just not going to have it. But what we have is what the Lord has given us. Embrace it. Be grateful for it. Be thankful for it. It's yours. It's ours. It's mine. Right? And while their buildings get bigger and bigger and wider and wider, I pray that the Lord will make our church go deeper and deeper with what we have. May everything that we say, may everything that we do, we do so because we know there is a reason for the season and the hope and the peace and the joy and love. Everything only is here because he came down and brought it with him. Father God, this morning I just stand before you and I know that there's, there's always the chance that there's someone in this room that today for some reason was just the day they randomly came to church in their mind. But there's nothing random about the kingdom of God. There's nothing random about faith. Everything about faith tells me it's been chosen and known before time. If we have the word of God to stand on, we know that you've known us and knit us together in our mother's womb. You know the hairs on our head. You know every breath that we will take. You know the last breath that we will take. Father, we, we overrate all these other things. We put our hope in, in our concerns and all these other things. But, but our hope needs only be in one thing. In the day that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In the day that we talked about our sins being placed on you. In the day that we talked about you becoming the person responsible for making the choices and decisions in my life. And that everything that we would do as a result of making a profession of faith is place our hope in Jesus Christ. And thanks to Acts 15, we know this, that by grace alone are we saved, that it is not the merit of man. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we could do to, to lose it in the same sense. If we can't earn it, then we can't lose it. We just simply need to embrace it and have it and try to live every day in that light, that this is a great and high calling on an individual. I thank you for those who have gathered today. I pray for those who don't know and would make a profession of faith today. And I do pray, Father, that the remainder of this holiday season would be focused on the singularity of finding that one person who doesn't know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, before we do this last song, I want to just reiterate on Wednesday. Uh, we used to do this quite a number of years ago. We do a 24-hour prayer thing, but it's very casual. So it's, there's nothing structured. Come, it's going to be 6 to 9. There's going to be music playing. Lights will be low. It's just a time to kind of let go and um, just be with God if you want to meet somebody here. It's just a nice time. It's a nice, sweet time before the holiday begins. So I just wanted to reiterate on that. separate even if I ran away your love never fails I know I still make mistakes but you have mercy for me every day your love never fails
bosom is much too wide I never thought I'd reach the other side But you're the never fade The wind is strong and the water's deep I'm not alone here in these open seas Cause your love never fades You stay the same through the ages Your love never changes There may be pain in the night But joy comes in a moment And when Good week. Hope to see you Sunday or Wednesday.